Hey guys, hello everyone. Welcome to the second episode of the Collectible Chaos Cast. I am a Kendall Richardson. Thank you very much for joining me as we go further into this journey into mystery, if you will. Um, <laughs> little reference there to the comics. I am excited to dive into this list today. If you've seen the video already, you will know that this uh, episode uh, is going to be my deeper dive into my top 10 favorite MCU characters. Uh, this is a list that I've been wanting to do for quite some time, and I thought, what better time to actually jump into it than right before phase four of the Marvel Cinematic Universe kicks off uh, in April with Black Widow. So I'm going to be looking back today on my favorite characters from the Infinity Saga, and this is going to be a lot of fun. So thank you for tuning in and let's dive in. Okay, so my number 10 favorite character is Peter Quill, Star-Lord himself. This is a wonderful character that I absolutely adore. I mean, I'm probably going to say that about every single character on this list, but it's true. One of the reasons Peter Quill is one of my favorites has to be because he's played by Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt is just a phenomenal actor. He is so funny. His comedic timing is just exceptional. I just adore everything he gives to this role, just the way he plays Peter. He's such a talented, talented man, very talented man. And just the, the mixture of comedy and emotion that he gives is just brilliant. He's very underrated, I think, in terms of his dramatic acting, because I think I think his performance in Guardians of the Galaxy 2, for example, is spectacular, especially during the scenes where, uh, spoilers, 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 where Yondu dies and he is holding him in his arms as he goes. And it's just the look on his face, the complete devastation, the complete just the way he's crying out for like he he wants to do anything he can to stop it from happening, but he, he can't and he's just so helpless and he just has to, you know, be there and watch his father figure or his, you know, his daddy, <laughs> if you will, die right in front of him. And the way Chris Pratt portrays that, I burst into tears every time. It is just, it's just absolutely phenomenal. And I believe he deserves a bit more recognition um, in terms of his, you know, acting performance in that scene. Just, I just, I love that. And throughout the whole franchise, like, you know, in Infinity War as well, when uh, more spoilers, there's going to be a lot of spoilers in this podcast, just FYI. Um, I'm going to try not to have so many spoilers in the video. So uh, hopefully that turns out well, because the video is not done yet. But nevertheless, I just, yeah, this is going to be spoiler territory. So just for everyone tuning in, make sure you've, you're a fan. I'm sure you're a fan of these movies if you're listening to this as well. So hopefully. So in Infinity War, um, when... Oh, it's so emotional. When Star-Lord, when Peter Quill learns that the love of his life, Gamora, has been killed by Thanos, her own father, um, you know, not only does that bring up issues for him of, you know, what he's been through in terms of ego, uh, he, his real father murdering his mother, 
um, and murdering all of, you know, hundreds of other innocent creatures just trying to find, you know, someone that he could remake the universe with, which turned out to be Peter. Not only does it bring that up, but it's the fact that, you know, he's lost, you know, his future. He was so, it was so beautiful to see. I mean, there is some weird, weird jarring stuff with, you know, going from, Guardians 2 to Infinity War and seeing how far their relationships progressed but I, I, I don't mind it too much um, you can just put it together anyway it's it's fine they were so beautiful together and it was so nice that they'd finally gotten together and then she dies and it's it's really sad but yeah the way the way Peter Quill handles it is you know I mean Chris Pratt gives again another brilliant performance I mean yes a lot of people blamed uh the decimation on Peter due to the fact that uh that all our heroes had basically gotten the gauntlet from Thanos during this fight on Titan and then because Peter lets his emotions get the best of him they screw up and therefore half the universe uh turns to dust including himself so that's yeah that's complicated. But it, again, I digress. Uh, Chris Pratt as Star-Lord is just brilliant. Perfect casting, I think. Although part of me does want to want to see what it would have been like for Jensen Ackles to play Star-Lord because he was one of the actors in contention for the role, but because of his supernatural responsibilities, unfortunately, uh, was not meant to be, but I think it worked out for the best. But Starlord is a character as well. I just, I don't know, I love how funny he is and how the best thing about the Guardians films, or one of the best things, is Starlord because he's our window in to this wider universe. Um, the Guardians of the Galaxy was pretty much the first time the MCU stepped into sci-fi outside of Thor, basically. But Thor is, you know, obviously a bit more mythological with some sci-fi elements, of course. But... This is the first time they've gone full full sci-fi adventure on us. And these were characters that we weren't familiar with. You know, they're not very popular amongst the wider, wider known world. So to have a character, to have this movie start with uh, Peter Quill and then progress to the, and tell the story through him. Like he, it's, and he's so relatable because he's still, he's, you know, he's been in space for what, like 20 it's like 27 years at this point. It's a long time. Um, I think it was 27 years. I think I'm getting the math right. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, 27 years. Yeah, but um, he's been so he's been in space for a long time. But he's still human. He is still someone that we can relate to. Someone we can understand. He has human reactions to things. He has a human sense of humor about him and the love of music. My f one of my favorite things about him, again, is just the way he loves music in this and the way music is used as well alongside Peter Quill to kind of bring the audience in and make the story connect to the audience. And the use of these songs that director James Gunn handpicked is just perfection. And I'm slightly biased because they used a Jackson 5 song and I am like a huge Michael Jackson fan, for those who don't know. Huge. Uh, so seeing or hearing Michael Jackson singing in a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie basically made me explode. So, <laughs> but that's one of the many great songs, obviously, in the first film. Come Get Your Love is probably my favorite, though, out of, the in out of, out of both of the Guardians films. It's 
I mean, that's that was our introduction to, to the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise. It was our introduction to Star Lord, like as an adult. It's just it's just so perfect. And then it was revisited in Avengers Endgame, and it was super effective. So uh, come get your lovers. I mean, a lot of people kind of go for Hooked on a Feeling or Fox on the Run or Spirit in the Sky. You know those classics. But for me, it's Come Get Your Love. Come and get your love. That's that's the that's the tune for me. But Yes, Chris Pratt's Star-Lord, Peter Quill, is just, yeah, he's he's so much fun and he gets so many great lines throughout the entire, you know, entire series and I'm super, super excited to see where his character goes now because he's been through so much already, losing, you know, both of his parents and then his father figure, like it's just... And for a man that's been through this kind of trauma to come out and still be able to you know, have a smile on his face at the end of it all. And then, yeah, of course, losing Gamora as well. I mean, yeah, he does look a bit... I mean, we don't really get to see him too much post-Endgame, post the battle. Like, we get him, get a glimpse of him in the battle, of course, where he meets the Gamora from 2014 that came forward with Thanos, and that's not his Gamora as he knows her. Um, it's the Gamora from before they even met, basically. It looks like, yeah, we're going to be... Guardians 3 will pick up where this left off with him trying to find her because she's escaped and, yeah, gone on the run throughout the galaxy and, yeah, that'll be tied into whatever the main story of Guardians of Volume 3 is. But, yeah, no, I just just love him. Uh, He's so much fun and I'm, yeah, like I said, I'm very, very excited to see where his journey takes us. So Peter Quill, there you have it. He is my number 10 Uh, on my list of my 10 favorite Marvel Cinematic Universe characters. Okay, moving into number nine now, and this is where I talk about the one and only Captain America, Steve Rogers. Okay, holy crap. (laughs) If I was doing a list of best MCU characters, he would be in the top three. Steve Rogers is just... He is just the the heart and the soul of this franchise. He really, really is to me. And, you know, people talk about Tony Stark being basically the founder, you know, the... <laughs> he, well, he was the person who started this whole thing, basically. He is. But there is just something about the way Chris Evans carried Steve Rogers and portrayed him and imbued him with this just pure spirit that is just, it's just marvelous. <laughs> Poor choice of words, Kendall. I love puns. But yeah, it's, um, it's marvelous. He's, he's just, he's just a beautiful soul, a beautiful character. He's in this for the right reasons. And again, similar to uh, Peter Quill, when we first meet Steve Rogers, you know, he's more like the everyman. Well, not not every not saying that every man is you know sickly and small and skinny, but he is you know he's not extraordinary. There's nothing you know there's nothing extraordinary about him. There's nothing remarkable about him. He's just a kind of normal guy who all he really wants to do is fight for what's right and you know stop the bullies because he doesn't care where they're from. And I to this day I think that's the best line that he's ever said, and uh, it's from the very first film first avenger so yeah i i adore i adore steve rogers he's just 
he's just fantastic and to to live that life of you know he never put himself first never from the get-go like he never everything he did was for the the betterment of humankind every single thing every choice he made uh was always for the people it was never for himself well unless he was choosing bucky but you know he always chose bucky because you know in his eyes that's that was the right thing to do because you know bucky is his best friend they've been they went through so much together growing up together in brooklyn and to see such a tragedy befall such a good man because we all know bucky Barnes is a good man is it obviously is is just something that he knows needs to be fixed so he never gives up on him he is true to his friends and even when we see him fighting in civil war and then you know his various spats with with tony stark like you know by the time that's all said and done you know you look back and you can see that that steve is you know steve is doing Steve's doing everything for the right reasons. I don't know where I'm going with this, but <laughs> I don't know. I just absolutely adore just his spirit and his nature and the goodwill of him. But I also love one of the best things about Steve Rogers is his character development throughout this entire franchise. From the time we see him in First Avenger to the time we leave him at the end of Avengers Endgame, he has been through probably one of the best, if not the best, character arc. Tony Stark would be a close second, I think, followed by Thor after that. But he's been through one of the best character arcs in this, yeah, in this entire in this entire franchise. It's 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 so incredible to take him to take a man who has only always had the best of intentions, and those intentions never change throughout the whole film. But it's everything around him that changes. So you know, after he wakes up in 2012. Uh, after, you know, sacrificing himself uh, at the end of the first Avenger, uh, or so we, you know, so we thought, but no, he's actually still alive because, of course, nobody really dies in these movies, really. Well, a couple of people now, but anyway, won't talk about that too much. (laughs) Not yet, anyway. But, you know, and then in, in Avengers, I love what Joss Whedon did with his character and about how they made him start to challenge his belief in the establishment, his belief in the system and and following the rules, you know, because he was a soldier in the 40s fighting for what he believed in because it was also what the US government believed in or so he thought, you know, he was on their side, you know. And, and then just kind of, this whole thing just kind of goes with his, um, his mission statement of, you know, I don't like bullies, I don't care where they're from because in Avengers 1 we get the whole, you know, S.H.I.E.L.D. are doing shady shit with the Tesseract and not telling the Avengers. They're not telling Steve Rogers, Captain freaking America, is being left in the dark in this. And he, you know, he and he doesn't want to believe. You see the frustration in him when Tony Stark and Bruce Banner could even suggest the mere idea that S.H.I.E.L.D. are clandestine. Um, it's just not on the cards for him. And so he, and when he learns it for himself... He's, you can see the con, uh, the confliction arise um, in him, and it's just the way Chris Evans portrays that is just it's just gorgeous to watch. And then again in Winter Soldier, they go so much further with that element. Every the seeds that were planted in Avengers just sprouted everywhere in Winter Soldier because 
uh, as we all know, that's the film that really turned the tide and really kind of gave us the MCU proper for me. I feel I feel like everything before that was just popcorn fun. I mean, yes, lots of great stories being told, lots of great movies were being made, but for some reason it just always comes down to Winter Soldier being the film that really just showed the world that these superhero movies could be more than just action, adventure, entertainment. You know, they actually could have some serious subject matter, serious themes thrown in. You know, they made Winter Soldier a spy film and it's just it's just glorious. And the the twist, the fact that Hydra had been working within Shield the entire time, like it's it's bonkers. It's crazy. It's it was unheard of at the time. It was just brilliant, like absolutely brilliant. And the way you know, this affects Steve Rogers. It changes him so much. I mean, he's still, still, like I said, the same guy who hates the bullies, but now the bullies have changed and it has now made him, you know, less trusting of, you know, less trusting of the establishment, less trusting of his government, uh, the people he works for, you know, because it's it's like because you know it's just it's just it's just crazy it's absolutely crazy that then you know the way hydra then go after captain america and turn him try and turn him into the enemy um and turn shield against him because there's obviously a lot of good people in shield and but the way yeah the way that happens uh with winter soldier and then where that leaves you know shield disbands at the end, um, all the secrets are out in the open, thanks to Black Widow, and and then we have civil war that happens, and that's it ups the stakes yet again in terms of the government. And immediately, Steve is just like, "No, nah, I'm not having any of this. No way, no thank you. You can take your records and shove them," <laughs> because they're like, it's just it's so brilliant, like. Civil War is the only like the main reason Civil War is so effective is because of what has happened to Steve Rogers leading up to this. It's it's perfectly executed, you know. I still to this day, however, cannot pick a side. You cannot make me pick a side. I'm I am firm team Stony. That's all I say every time. Team Stony. I'm not choosing You Can't Make Me because the beautiful thing about Civil War being the beautiful film that it is, is that it really shows you uh, very well both sides to this argument as to whether or not the Avengers should be supervised by uh, by the count, by a council, by the United Nations, by a operating, you know, governmental body or something, you know, it it's just it's just brilliantly done. And just the way it affects Steve Rogers. And I just adore, I really just adore everything about his character development. And then the fact that he he ends up, as he, the last thing we get to see of him, he finally chooses something for himself. He uses the time travel ability that they now have to go back to the 40s and be with Peggy, his true love, love of his life. And they finally get their dance. And it is just perfection for me it is storytelling perfection I love it so much I mean that's the ending for him that is the best ending you know we know he dies because obviously by the time 
we're in 2023 and he's on the bench. He's a very old man again. Uh, well, not again. He's a very old man. <laughs> um, but, you know, we don't see him. He doesn't die in battle. He doesn't die a, a soldier's death. He's spent his whole life being the soldier now. He's spent more than enough time doing this, fighting this fight. And now is his time to just, you know, be with the woman he loves and has always loved. And no, there is no one more than Steve Rogers that deserves that. And the way Chris Evans just, oh my God, I just adore. He is such a talented, talented actor. Chris Evans, absolutely talented. Uh, I can't, I can't stress that enough. It's going to be one of the things about the MCU I'm going to miss quite a bit is, is his portrayal. And especially the fact that (laughs) in Age of Ultron, we, we see him famously uh, say, watch your language. And then in Avengers Endgame, he goes, oh, you've got to be shitting me when he sees the 2012 version of himself. And it's it's so funny. It's so fantastic. And that fight scene as well, might I add, is just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, and But I think still may, maybe my favorite thing, my favorite scene involving him would have to be uh, when he wields Mjolnir for the first time and Thor was like, I knew it. Calling back to the uh, epic scene in... Uh, Age of Ultron, where they all try and lift the hammer. And I I know I mentioned that in my last video, but I, you know, it's appropriate to mention it here because it's, yeah, it all just adds to the perfection that is Steve Rogers, that is Captain America and the way Chris Evans plays him. So there you have it, guys. Uh, Steve Rogers is my number nine pick for um, my, yeah, top favorite MCU characters. Okay, so number eight now... We are going to start talking about, or I am going to start talking about, my number eight pick is Peter Parker. Yes. Okay. Right. So Tom Holland is one of the best, if not the best, casting addition to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. He is just perfection. This kid can act his socks off. He is so great. So much fun to watch. (laughs) He's, He's perfect. He is literally, for me, he's the perfect Spider-Man. Like, I mean, you know, everyone has, you know, their own their own spy- favorite Spider-Man, but and Spider-Man movies and all of that jazz. But I don't know, just something about the way he nails both sides to Peter Parker, the way he nails the high school kid who's a little, little awkward but not totally socially inept. And and just quirky and nerdy and all of that stuff. And then the way he nails the wisecracking Spider-Man, his alter ego. I mean, he hasn't gone full with the wisecracking yet, I guess. He's mostly just all about making pop culture references, which is one of my favorite things. <laughs> just on that, I should mention, I think still my favorite scene with Peter Parker is from Civil War. From the first movie, we get to see him. And the first time we get to see Spider-Man in action uh, is when he makes the reference to that really old movie, uh, Empire Strikes Back. And (laughs) along with the help of Iron Man and War Machine, he swings around with his web and uh, around the legs of giant men and brings him down just like the AT-AT in Empire Strikes Back. And it is poetic cinema. I still to this day remember turning to my friends uh, that I was sitting with in the theater watching Civil War going, 
Is this even happening? Is this even real? What am I watching? I was... <laughs> It was so good. It was so good. That whole airport battle sequence. I could I could do a whole podcast on it for two hours and just go through it scene like shot by shot. I honestly could. It's my it's one of my favorite moments in the entire MCU still. Uh, and it's been nearly four years since that movie came out, which is crazy. However, Peter Parker, yeah, I I adore this iteration of Spider-Man as well because Marvel did a really smart thing. Kevin Feige and the screenwriters of Homecoming and John Watts, the director, made a great choice in not showing us his origin. We don't see him get bit by the radioactive spider. We don't see Uncle Ben die. We don't need to. And this is what the DCEU fails to recognize about Batman (laughs) by showing Batman's origin Again and again and again. It's in popular culture, guys. Everyone knows how Batman was created. You don't need to give us new and made, barely even slightly different takes on his origin. This is how you handle the origin of a popular character in popular culture that everybody knows. This is how you handle it. You, you, you just use a couple of little lines referencing it. Like there's that conversation where after Ned discovers, um, after Peter accidentally reels to Ned, his best friend, um, that he is Spider-Man, there's a brief conversation they're having walking to school when, you know, they mention the spider. And then Ned's like, can I be bitten by it or something? Like, is the spider still alive? No, the spider's dead. You know, they just kind of reference it. It's like 20 seconds. And then in Civil War, there's the conversation, the brilliant conversation in Peter's bedroom the exchange between Tony Stark and Peter Parker where Tony's trying to convince Peter, convince Spider-Man, Spider-Ling as he calls him, which is hilarious, to join the Avengers or at least to join Team Tony for the fight, again, you know, for the fight to try and bring in Captain America in Germany, i.e. airport battle. Uh, and Peter says to, to Tony, like, you know, when you can do the things that you can and then the bad things happen like or you don't like when you don't do the things that you can do and then the bad things happen and the look on his face is just it breaks your heart like the way Tom Holland just the way he's he makes his face look so sad and gives there's so much depth to that expression and the look in his eyes and the tone of his voice and the way he says that it's just brilliantly executed because we know that's about Uncle Ben you know that's about Uncle Ben. They don't need to show it. We know it, okay? It's just it's just excellent storytelling, and it's one of the best things in the MCU, along with Tom Holland's uh, casting. It's just phenomenal. I really, really enjoy the Spider-Man movies. Uh, Homecoming is still my favorite out of the two, but I did enjoy Far From Home quite a bit as well, especially for that epic cliffhanger at the end. And it's so sad that I we don't even know when Spider-Man 3 will be happening. <sighs> because, you know, spoilers, we had an excellent cameo from J.K. Simmons. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. In which he reprised his role as J. Jonah Jameson, working for the Daily Bugle, like, online blog kind of website. Um, and he announces via Mysterio, once Mysterio's dead, that Spider-Man is Peter Parker. 
and that uh, he killed Mysterio, even though that's not exactly how it happened. And it's and then the movie ends and it's like, what? <laughs> I just remember, I remember sitting in the cinema in, I was far from home when I saw Far From Home. <laughs> yes, I'm going to make the joke until the day I die. And just losing my ever-loving mind over that. And it, oh my God, the implications. It's just, yeah. So I cannot wait until we get Spider-Man 3. However, I want to talk about quickly one of the best scenes involving Spider-Man, I think, out of all of these films. Well, two. I'm going to talk about two scenes before I move on. So first scene I want to talk about is the masterclass in acting. That is the scene where Adrian Toomes is driving his daughter Liz and Peter to the school dance. My goodness. Now that was a good twist. That was such a good twist. Like... I mean, it's it's kind of funny how these worlds are so small. Everyone, it's almost like, you know, these characters are living in a small town where everyone knows everyone and everyone just happens to be connected, but that's just the way these kind of movies are written and they're created and they're scripted. And that's fine because if you do it in a certain way, you can get your shock value, you can get your surprise, you can get your twist, and that's what they did with Homecoming and revealing that Adrian Toomes is actually Liz's father and Liz is the girl that Peter has been crushing on the whole film and it's and you never have a single clue. I mean, I don't know about any of you guys. I mean, let me know. Message me, at me, feel free, whatever. Just because I had no idea. I had no idea. It came out completely out of left field. But that scene in the car when the two of them are just... Like, Liz goes inside and then... Adrian turns around to Peter and you can see the fear the way Tom Holland just sits there stiff as a board but uh, I just oh my god it's so intense and he's also kind of I think he's 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 afraid but I think he's also angry because it's like I can't I can't do anything I know who you are now and you know who I am and I can't do anything right now and I need to get out of this situation so I can stop you from, you know, doing, doing what you need to do, but uh, doing the, yeah, the executing a villainous plan. But the way Michael Keaton, who was just a legend, just an icon in his own right, as we all know, I mean, hello, Batman, one of the best Batman ever. And the way Tom Holland is such a young and up and coming star can just go toe to toe with him in this scene. It's, you can you could cut the tension in the in the cinema with a knife. It was just brilliant. It's so good. Oh my god. Yeah, it's it's yeah. It gives me chills just thinking about how good that scene is. It's just phenomenal. And the last scene I want to talk about before moving on to my next pick on the list is of course, I have to mention spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. Peter Parker's death and his relationship with Tony Stark because <laughs> The father figure, the mentor uh, aspect of Peter's character development and his relationship with Tony is just, it's just absolutely wonderful and so well written and so well performed by RDJ and Tom Holland. But in Infinity War, it's just so, it's so emotional. I, and when I found out after watching that scene where he, where he, you know, he knows he's because of his spider sense. He knows he's about to die. That dialogue was 
not scripted. It was improvised. I don't know if you know that, but it's improvised that I don't want to go that, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm not sure about that. I don't feel so good. Mrs. Dark. Maybe that was as well, but the, I don't want to go that scene that makes me cry every time I watch it. Every time. I know he's fine. I know he comes back. We all knew he was going to come back, but this is how you do character death, even though you know things are going to work out eventually. But I suppose at the time it was so bleak and so dark that we were like, everybody's turned to dust. What the fuck's happened? <laughs> I mean, really. Uh, but just, just the way his voice breaks, the way he clutches onto Tony, you know, his, his father figure, his mentor, his re- the reason he's there. The whole reason he's a part of this and he's there doing the right thing and fighting to save the universe is because of Tony Stark and he's the last person he clings to as he goes and he knows he's about to go. And I just, I don't want to cry right now, but I'm just thinking about it and I just, it's so, it's so powerful. And Tom Holland just blew me away and blew everyone away. Everyone was just stunned and so emotional and just so impressed by the delivery from him and especially again the fact that with him going toe-to-toe with Tony Stark in a lot of these scenes and Robert Downey Jr. is an Oscar-nominated actor he is a legend of the industry as well and he holds his own this young kid he's like in his early 20s now but he's like he's so good he's so good it's just insane. They they really found like a diamond in the rough, you know, when they cast him. They really did. But I just, it's beautiful. And and then the fact that, you know, you reverse this and then you get to the end of Endgame and then Peter Parker is there when Tony dies. I mean, it's not exactly a complete mirror reversal because, you know, Pepper's holding Tony when he goes, but, but the way... The way Peter, he's just like, we did it, Mr. Stark, we won. And his voice starts to break and, cause he know, and he starts to cry immediately because he knows Tony's dying. I think, I don't know if it's Rhodey that picks him up. I think it's Rhodey or maybe Pepper. Maybe I can't remember um, right now, but, you know, as he's being lifted from the ground and from, he was on his knees in front of him. He just says, the last thing he says to him is Tony. He calls him by his first name. And this is after we finally got the two of them having a proper hug. Like the fact that Tony Stark sees him and basically the whole reason he decided to go on this path to save everyone was so he could bring Peter back because he looks at that photo of him and Peter that's on his shelf in the kitchen and then goes and just he doesn't say anything, but he he knows what he has to do. And, And then he sees him and he hugs him now that he knows he's safe and he did it he's done what he 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 set out to do he brought everyone back he brought peter parker back god it's so good guys i can't (laughs) anyway um so ending it on that emotional note though (laughs) that is uh my number eight pick for my top 10 mcu characters and that was peter parker and now we're going to be segueing perfectly into Tony Stark, my number seven pick. Oh, yeah. So just riding off of that emotion. <laughs> I don't really need to repeat any of that uh, exactly. But, you know, <sighs> where does one begin with Tony Stark? 
I mean, Iron Man 1 might be a good place to start. <laughs> the founder, the just the the legacy this character has left behind, that Robert Downey Jr. has left behind. It's just, it's, oh my God. I can't, I can't even with Tony Stark right now. Yeah, he's incredible. Um, so second, I think, to Steve Rogers, this character arc that he goes on. Uh, he where he's the where he starts in Iron Man one to where he finishes in Avengers Endgame and then kind of in Far From Home after that is just such an incredible journey and a complete changing. I mean, while kind of Steve Rogers stays the same, yet everything around him changes. Tony Stark changes within himself. He he just you know he starts off as this you know the genius billionaire playboy philanthropist that we all know and love, and then he goes through that traumatic experience and nearly dies and and then Iron Man is born and he's such a faulty hero, he is not um, a great role model when he starts out you know he's he's in it for himself and you know that, but it's just the way that Robert Downey Jr. portrays him that you know makes you fall in love with him he just brings this charm that's just next level the quips are my favorite thing that's probably the thing I'm going to miss the most about Tony Stark being in these movies is the quips the nicknames he gives everyone in every single film uh, and they all change all the time like the nicknames are just one of my favorite things ever and just another excellent facet of his character and I'm really going to miss that but you know, you so there's the you like him enough. You you you're with him enough to uh to, to you know to be invested in him, to want him to succeed. But you 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 can very easily acknowledge that he's not a perfect hero, um, and he doesn't really become a perfect hero until you know right up till the end. Basically, I mean he's it's such an interesting story. It's such an interesting journey and the the battles he faces and the, the things he must overcome and yeah it's it's brilliant tony stark is is absolutely brilliant you know the fact that obadiah stane you know who's who's kind of a a father figure to him in a way or you know like your favorite uncle kind of figure because he was you know his i guess his dad's best friend or one of his dad's very close friends that helped um, to run Stark Industries, and then he, you know, he assisted um, Tony after he after he took over after his parents died um, or were killed, and and then you know he he just he just decides that you know I want some glory for myself and screw you Tony you know the fact that you've had everything you've had everything handed to you because of who your parents were uh, and you don't deserve. you know you don't deserve this you you know I want to run this company so you know he he just turns sinister and turns on him and that was a really good twist as well I I really enjoyed and Jeff Bridges performs Obadiah Stane very very well it's a shame we only got him for one film yes and then I really like the dynamic in Iron Man 2 between Justin Hammer kind of being this carbon copy like this imitator of Tony Stark you know and it's really fascinating and which they kind of take that and expand upon uh, with Aldrich Killian in Iron Man 3 because, you know, he kind of, um, after Tony Stark rejects him and then he goes on to um, found his own company and 
you know, creates extremists that then betters him, he feels as a human being and turns him into this suave kind of playboy philanthropist himself. And, and then he, be, you know, he's revealed to be the, the Mandarin, but not really the Mandarin as the villain of Iron Man 3. So, and yeah. And then testing, you know, testing Pepper Potts's loyalty to Aldrich and to, to Tony as well through that. But that movie is interesting just in terms of the whole suit thing. Because there's, you know, one of the contentious parts between Tony and Pepper is the fact that the suits, you know, she's she's sick of him. He's obsessed. He's obsessed with his suits. He is an addiction to his suits, and it's a problem for her because it of the things it causes and the danger it, it poses, the threat it poses to their livelihood and to their lives. So she wants him to stop. He can't stop. But by the end of the film, of course, he you know eventually um decides to get rid of all of his suits he does it for pepper and he does it for himself because you know iron man 3 one of the excellent things it did was go into the post-traumatic stress following uh the first avengers film in 2012 after the battle of new york where tony died technically for a couple of seconds and (sighs) went through some hardcore stuff and then it greatly affects him in Iron Man 3. And so he, yeah, destroying the suits. It is, it's a great, I think it's a great journey. A great story is told, but then it just, it just kind of feels undermined and undone when you get to see him next in Age of Ultron and he's back in the suit and he's with them. And it's just like, oh, okay, I guess he's, I guess he's still Iron Man. And they don't really explain it too much, but I suppose in, in this problem's defense, um, he has created the Iron Legion because he wants them to be Iron Man instead of him and there and by extension Ultron he wanted Ultron to be what he can no longer be and be a suit of armor around the world and of course we all know that backfires so it's just it's 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 excellent this just as the way okay just as the way they build up Steve Rogers story in Civil War with his you know feelings towards the government and the establishment that puts him on his side of the accords all the films leading up to Civil War do that for Tony Stark and present to us why he's on his side um, because of the things that have happened that have led all the collateral damage that he's responsible for that have led to the Accords even needing to exist. And he has had enough and he thinks they should be put in check. And he says that. And, you know, because it, it, he and he feels guilty. He feels he feels so guilty for Ultron, especially. That's the big one. Uh, you know, we see him give that speech in Civil War about that young student whose mother confronted him um, after he was killed in Sokovia because of Ultron. Uh, and just how passionate he gets. And I love the way RDJ kind of takes that stance. And it it's, sets a huge turning point. Uh, for Tony Stark's journey, he really this is the this is the moment where he really starts to become this selfless hero. I mean, it start it obviously started years before, but I feel like it's not until Age of Ultron and then especially Civil War where he starts to realize that you know m- maybe we need to be held more accountable. Maybe we need because I he's like he he's just but he's you know he's transposing his guilt onto um, the Avengers as a whole. You know, he, so it's kind of, it's good, it's good in terms of he's, he's owning up to his shit and realizing he's made mistakes, even though his intentions were good. 
but it's unfortunate that it affects the whole team and ends up dividing them based on, you know, what Steve believes and then what Tony believes and their beliefs clash and then everyone is just kind of forced to choose a side, essentially, whether you're for the Accords or against. But I just love the way that, you know, this affects Tony Stark's journey so much. And then you bring in uh, Peter Parker into the mix and then we get to see Tony basically become a dad. Uh, and it's, it's, it's excellent. Like... The, the banter between Peter Parker and, and Tony Stark in Spider-Man Homecoming especially is excellent. I, I love the fact that uh, Iron Man is in that movie just enough. Like, not, not heaps, because this is still Spider-Man's fight against Vulture. Uh, but he's in it just the right amount. And um, I love that scene with the two of them. You know, after, the, after Iron Man had to step in and help Peter save that boat from you know, and collapsing and all those people from dying. He, he's basically having the same conversation he would have, like he would have with his former self. Like he's like, if you're nothing without the suit, you shouldn't have it. And it's just such a great reflection of his character growth over the course of all these films. And it, yeah, it references Iron Man 3 and it makes that start to make more sense, um, you know, in why he decided to uh, execute, uh, was it Operation Clean Slate or Project Clean Slate and get rid of all the suits? So, but it's 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 so good. He's such a good mentor. He becomes someone by this point. He has well and truly become a man we should all aspire to be and we can look up to. And he's such a great mentor for Peter. And Peter's just like, I just want to be like you. And and then Tony's like, but I wanted you to be better because that's the beautiful thing about Tony Stark is that yes, he's becoming selfless, but he still acknowledges the flaws he feels he has or flaws that he had and how they've affected the world um, and how many lives that have been lost due to his actions, whether it was pre-Iron Man or while he was wearing the suit. It's just, it's so, it's so beautifully written. God, I don't even know what else to say. But then, you know, the fact that he plays such a pivotal role in Infinity War and then in Endgame in helping to save the universe is it makes so much sense and for him to die the way he did <laughs> it's it's so it's such a great ending to his character uh the way he goes out it's such a great ending to his character it really really is <sighs> it's it's just beautiful um and poetic and just to see him you know He's the man who has never been about the sacrifice play. He doesn't do that. You know, he wouldn't lay down on the wire. He would cut the wire. And here he is in his final moments of his life holding the iron gauntlet with the infinity stones in it. Well, he doesn't have the gauntlet. He's holding the... (laughs) He's got the infinity stones on his suit, on 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 his hand. And... And then he says, I am Iron Man and snaps his fingers. And the fact that we're calling back to Iron Man 1 and the ending of that film where he says, I am Iron Man, roll credits, like, mm, it's so good. I can never stress enough to you people how good that is. It's just, I'm so glad they reshot that because that wasn't the original ending. The original ending was just, I think, I don't think he actually said anything. 
I think he just had the fingers, had the fingers, had the stones on his fingers and snapped. I don't think he actually said anything. And then they've gone, no, you need to say, you need to say something. And then they, they came up with I am Iron Man as a response and as a way to end. Because that's basically his last words. I mean, he kind of mumbles pepper to, or pep is the last official word he says. But yeah, um... And then his funeral, I just want to talk about his funeral before we move on. <sighs> Holy crap. Um, it's so powerful. And the reason it's so powerful is for two, two reasons. Okay, two reasons. One, the fact that Pepper lays a wreath in, you know, puts it in the, in the lake by their house and has that fir- the first arc reactor that was in his chest with the words, you know, proof that Tony Stark has a heart. God, it's so, it's so good. That's poetic, poetic cinema, if you will. And then the fact that after that, the camera pans back across and everybody's there. Every single damn character he is responsible for. Get, you know, the camera, you know, goes over them, pans across them slowly, focusing on each one. All of these characters with all of their franchises, all their movies, all of these heroes affected by what he did and the sacrifice that he made, the fact that they're able to carry on. It's just so powerful and so incredibly moving to see his legacy like that uh, and to know that he made the ultimate sacrifice for just the the most selfless of reasons and to give these people a chance to actually live he saved everyone and that's the journey of tony stark like i can't anyway i can't even with how good it is but i'm gonna finish there on on my boy tony because i love him 3000 oh god morgan don't even get me started on morgan stark we'll be here for five hours holy shit okay all right so my number six pick is groot (laughs) Oh, okay. So Groot, 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 Groot. Mostly I just love Groot because he's so cute. (laughs) He's so cute. He's so adorable, but he also has a lot of heart to him. um, As we discover when we first meet him in Guardians Volume 1, it's just excellent. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's just awesome. I mean, he only ever says, you know, three words. Um, and then by the end of that first film, it changes to We Are Groot when he, you know, sacrifices himself to save the Guardians so that they can stop Ronan. It's, yeah, he's he's just awesome. And I, I love big, tall Groot. I love baby Groot. I love teenage Groot. Like, they're all, they're all so much fun. Baby Groot in particular would be my favorite just because... Yeah, just because of his cuteness and I just have a weakness for that. <laughs> it's like my... The three three tiers of cuteness. It's like, I mean, now it's Baby Yoda's number one. Um, then then Groot, Baby Groot, and then Goose um, from Captain Marvel. So, um, but no, Baby Groot is just such a genius thing. And you know, we get that first glimpse of him at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy number one, where he's dancing to "I Want You Back" in the pot, and you know, trying to full Drax. It's very, very funny. Love that scene very, very much. Uh, but again, I'm biased. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, volume two is just, it kind of, it's interesting because he kind of borderlines the 
the, the cuteness level of, of a character that's that you know could just you're so close to being uh so cute people are just gonna weep openly just weep and i nearly i nearly did there's a scene in guardians 2 where the ravagers are basically torturing him they've put him in a little ravagers suit and they're pouring all their drinks on him and kicking him around and making fun of him and oh i nearly cried i nearly cried i couldn't handle it i really couldn't handle it at all um yeah that was that was rough but every other little moment that baby Groot has in that film, especially following directly following that scene, which I, I, you know, seeing him kind of wander back very forlornly um, to, to rocket and Yondu was just very upsetting. But then that scene that follows, it perfectly lifts the mood again when um, Yondu's trying to tell him to grab his fin and he keeps bringing back (laughs) different things and, Oh, it's so good. It's so funny. It's, yeah, perfectly, perfectly executed humor. Absolutely, Groot is just uh, fascinating. And then his relationship with Rocket as kind of his father, like it's because Rocket went from being, you know, Groot's, uh, you know, best friend, I guess. Like Groot was uh, Rocket's bodyguard bodyguard slash muscle. in Guardians 1 and they were basically best friends and then he loses loses that version of Groot and it's very very sad and you see Rocket so emotional but then he manages to um you know sort of resurrect Groot by bringing him uh bringing in this you know raising this new version of Groot um from the old version and um which is just a really fascinating aspect of uh, Groot's species the flora flora colossus they're called and yeah, and then the journey from there that where Rock, you know, Rocket, Rocket, yeah, raises raises Groot from a baby to a teenager, basically, and it's I love the changing in the the dynamic of that relationship. It's really cool, uh, especially sad when you see in Infinity War when uh, heartbreakingly so Groot was one of those affected by the decimation, and we have to watch Rocket watch Groot turn to dust in front of his eyes, and it's. If you weren't already crying then, especially because he's sitting there and he's fading away and he says, I am Groot, but nobody knew at the time what he said. And then James Gunn decided to break all of our hearts by letting us know that uh, Groot was saying, Dad? (laughs) It's so emotional. And just the way Rocket was just like, no, 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 no. He's basically just like, I've lost you once before. I can't lose you again. And then he loses him. And it's so upsetting. It's so upsetting. But yeah, I just love the joy that Groot brings to the franchise. He's so much fun. He's so cute. He's so funny. And just to see baby Groot kick ass, just as well as, you know, uh, adult Groot kicked ass and in Guardians 1 when he's he you know uses his you know branches to wipe out all these uh all of these men like Ronan's men and then he turns to um <laughs> what Drax I think it's Drax and Peter he turns to them and he just smiles like so sweetly and so innocently that's the beautiful thing about Groot he's such a um like juxtaposition of you know of muscle of like brute brute uh force and just and just pure innocence and cuteness like 
Groot may as well be brute and cute, like mixed together. That's basically what he is. It's he's excellent, um, and I love the fact that he, you know, kind of connects with Thor in Infinity War as well. You know, because <laughs> Thor can speak Groot. Because we find out it was an elective on Asgard, which is a, a lovely little reference, and a lovely little Easter egg there. And um, his name, Groot's name, is actually Tree. <laughs> like the translation of his name is actually Tree, which is awesome because Th- that's what Thor calls him. This is my friend Tree. When he introduces him to Steve Rogers, and he says, "I am Groot," and then Steve Rogers is, "I am Steve Rogers," is still, still probably one of the best moments of Infinity War, (laughs) just quietly. So good. Um, And then, yeah, and then the fact that, you know, Groot uses his, one of his arms, one of his branches to create the handle for Stormbreaker for Thor. Um, It's kind of just speaking to the, you know, the noble side of his nature, the, the heroic side, you know, the fact that under that whining teenage surface, uh, we see in, that we see in Infinity War, he is actually, you know, a pretty decent person. Like he, he's good where it counts. So uh, that was really lovely to see. Um, and I can't wait to see more of Teenage Groot um, growing up uh, in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three when that comes out in a couple of years from now. So that is my number six pick, Groot. Holy crap, Groot is excellent. Okay, uh, so what else do we have here? Uh, my number five pick, of course. My number five pick from one hilarious character to another. Ladies and gentlemen, Korg. Oh, man. Korg is the best Cronin you will ever meet in the galaxy, in the universe. Holy shit. <laughs> Taika Waititi is, again, I said it last podcast, I'll say it, just, he's just a brilliant filmmaker, a brilliant actor, comedic genius, he's so funny, and I just adore the fact, again, this is, maybe this is why Korg is so popular, maybe because we had Groot as like a foundation for Korg, because Korg is also that combination of brute strength and innocence because you have this giant Cronin made of rocks. Um, he's intimidating as hell. Like he's, he could kill you quite easily if he really wanted to. He's very strong. Um, however, then you hear him open his mouth and he's like, Oh, Hey bro. <laughs> My name is Cog. I'm kind of like the leader in here. <laughs> It's, I make myself laugh. I know I'm lame, but I just, I adore, I adore Taika Waititi and the fact that he is Korg and the fact that they made the creative decision to give Korg this like high pitched New Zealand accent. It's just so good. Like on so many levels. I absolutely love it. Um, I couldn't love it more if I tried. He is just so, so good. And probably the best part about Thor Ragnarok really, uh, like one of the best characters introduced in Thor Ragnarok. And I'm so glad that we're going to be seeing more of him in Thor Love and Thunder, which comes out at the end of 2021, which I am literally counting down the days for. Uh, I cannot wait. It's going to be great. Uh, but yes, Korg, everything he says is just so quotable, so funny, and just so unexpected. 
like the little jokes he makes that he doesn't realize he's making like you know <laughs> it's just yeah he's so he's so funny and his little relationship with his friend Meek is is gorgeous to watch as well you know Meek doesn't really feature too much he can't he can't speak at least he can't speak English or, or whatever you know language it is that they're all speaking um English I guess uh and I don't know he kind of he kind of speaks for him you know especially in the end he's like oh Meek's dead yeah I accidentally stomped on him on the bridge and I felt guilty so I've been carrying him around this whole time <laughs> it's I could do the whole thing I just love it <laughs> I really do um and then we flash forward to Avengers Endgame and yeah <laughs> yeah and then we see him and Meek sitting on Thor's couch in New Asgard playing Fortnite <laughs> And talking about how Noob Master 69 is calling him a dickhead. And that guy's calling me a dickhead again, Thor. <laughs> it's so funny. It's so random and just, oh, I, I love it. I love it so much. I really, really do. It's just brilliant. It's so funny. I, I honestly just want Korg to have a movie all his own. Or I kind of, part of me really misses the Marvel one-shots. Like, I feel like Korg would be the perfect character to have a one-shot. <laughs> Just, sort of, you know, similar to how they, you know, uh, Taika helped direct the um, the Daryl kind of, like, little one-shot things that they did. The little side stories um, with, with Thor's housemate, Daryl. Very, very funny. Uh, and, uh, yeah, if you could have something like that where, like, you know, we're kind of, it's a mockumentary style interviewing Korg and Korg's talking to the camera and yeah. And we're seeing, you know, aspects of his daily life. Like that would be, that would be a dream come true if they could do that. Disney, if you could make that happen, give Korg his own Disney plus show. I don't care. Just do it. I want more Korg. Uh, so yeah, like I said, I am very, very excited to see Korg in Thor, Love and Thunder. Oh, it's going to be brilliant. So there you have it, guys. That is Korg, my number five pick. Oh, so much fun. Okay, we're getting into the nitty and gritty part of the list now because the next four characters, uh, the last four characters on my top ten list of MCU characters uh, are all kind of separated by the smallest margin. We're going to start with my number four pick, and that is Agent Phil Coulson. Oh, Clark Gregg, ladies and gentlemen, what an addition to the MCU. The fact that he, I think he was only going to be maybe a one-off kind of character, just a small supporting character introduced in the first Iron Man film, the first character to mention the organization S.H.I.E.L.D. on screen, the way he does it is just perfection. Um, I adore Clark Gregg so much. He's become one of my favorite actors and just the way he plays Agent Coulson is just marvelous. <laughs> Again, the word marvelous, uh, but it's true. He is. He's just a joy, absolute joy to watch. Uh, and he goes on such an interesting journey as well. And so I'm going to dive in here to a little bit of some Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. spoilers. So uh, if you haven't watched that show, Stop right now, literally go watch all six seasons and then come back because it is one of the best shows on television that no one is watching and it's such a travesty. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is so fantastic and what they do with Coulson's character on that show is just remarkable and brilliant to watch. 
But yeah, just, I don't know, I just love, I just love where Coulson, like Coulson's journey, where he starts, you know, in the, the Iron Man films. And then, you know, he gets such a bigger role to play in the first Thor film because he's sent to New Mexico to investigate, uh, you know, Mjolnir um, that crash lands there after uh, Odin throws it through the Bifrost when he banishes Thor. Uh, but I just love, I just love that, you know, that dynamic. But he's kind of, he's kind of strange in that film only because he's, because he's S.H.I.E.L.D. And unfortunately, S.H.I.E.L.D. in Thor, in the Thor film, the first Thor film, they're not, they're not the bad guys, of course, but they're kind of, you know, they're that they're that organization that's trying to do their job, but they're interrupting what our protagonists, what our heroes are trying to accomplish. They're hindering them um, achieving their goal, their mission of the film. Um, and I kind of hate it when they do that. I hate it when two forces are on the same side and you have them at odds. Like, although that sounds like Civil War, <laughs> just a little bit, but I love Civil War. But I just kind of hate it when it's like this. Like, it's when you have your, your other government organization and then you have your, your protagonist and they could just easily just work together and the government's just trying to do their thing. And then, yeah, I don't like, I don't like the, that kind of trope very much but it's done well in Thor and Coulson uh yeah he's he's pretty brilliant Clark Clark Gregg's delivery on most of his lines is pretty much every single one of his lines is just phenomenal I adore the relationship he has with Tony Stark the fact that you know Tony just says uh his first name is Agent (laughs) in Avengers is still one of the best lines in that um and yeah seeing Loki kill Coulson in the first Avengers film was completely out of left field. It was not something that we uh, expected at all. Uh, it was a complete shock, absolute complete shock. And it stung not only the Avengers as we see on screen, but it also stung with the the audience, with the fans, because here's Coulson. He's just a regular guy who just works for S.H.I.E.L.D. and does his part to kind of save humanity. And then he's tragically murdered by Loki and we just kind of really you know you really feel awful about it because he's such a pure hero a pure guy just trying to do the right thing just like Steve Rogers was trying to do the right thing back in the 40s when he you know couldn't physically help uh, and was being rejected from the war you know he only ever wanted to you know just do the right thing and support his country and fight for what was right and that's what Coulson also represents your every man you know doing his part for humanity and yeah to see him die is very very sad however this is where the flaw in Phil Coulson comes in um but it works it works eventually but it's it's yeah so basically Coulson comes back to life in S.H.I.E.L.D. uh in case you're not aware uh via Project Tahiti uh, which we learn about in the first season of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, because, you know, there's a whole mystery, obviously, shrouding shra- uh, Coulson as to why he is still alive, you know, because we all saw him die in Avengers, and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. literally picks up uh, a year after the events of the Battle of New York. So, but um, it's, yeah, it's so it's so curious, and a lot of people feel that uh, this undermines the power of his death in Avengers. And I can kind of agree with that. I definitely can. It's a fair statement. It does. And it kind of also hurts the MCU in terms of 
what they were trying to do with the TV shows. So Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was, I think, the first TV show spun off out of the MCU, set in the world, but never really, you know, appears in on the big screen. Like, the one thing I, I wanted in the Infinity Saga, in Infinity War or in Endgame, was some kind of reference to the fantastic heroes in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., some phenomenal characters that have never had a chance to shine on the big screen. And uh, it's such a shame. That's probably the biggest... Probably the only problem I really have with the Infinity Saga is not bringing in those characters. However, they do manage to bring in characters from the films into the show um, in these really cool ways. Using, They even have Samuel Jackson appears in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as Nick Fury. Um, Kobe Smulders is there as Maria Hill for a few episodes. Uh, Lady Sif... Uh, of the Warriors 3 is in a couple episodes of S.H.I.E.L.D. as well. So there's a lot of connections um, to the universe. It just doesn't go the other way around, which is a shame. Um, but I suppose they didn't ever want to bring Coulson back to the films just because it would confuse fans who only watch the movies and don't watch the shows. So I do understand why. But at the same time, for me, it kind of uh, it sucks. It's, it sucks. It's just, I feel like it's a missed opportunity, which is, I, th- I think they're learning from now because now we're getting, uh, you know, the Disney plus TV shows featuring our movie characters and they're all going to be interchangeable and, and connect to each other now properly. So they're, they've realized their mistakes with the TV shows and now they're, you know, actually doing it right from what I can tell. So yeah, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be very good. Uh, but yeah, the journey that Phil Coulson goes on in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is an incredible one. He he doesn't really grow too much as a character, I suppose, because he was already great when we first meet him and by the time he dies on screen. But he but the things he goes through in the series are just are just very powerful. He has his father relationship with uh, Sky slash Daisy slash Quake, which is just brilliant to watch. Uh, I love their bond, their relationship. He also develops her towards the end of his life because Coulson actually dies again at the end of season five. Um, he develops a romantic relationship with uh, Agent Melinda May and uh, that is phenomenal and wonderful to see um, because he deserves happiness. He really does. And I just, I just adore... I really just my favorite thing about Coulson is just Clark Gregg and his delivery, the way he plays Coulson, the altruistic nature of him, the badass nature about him. Like, I think that's the best thing about what S.H.I.E.L.D. does with Coulson is that they make him more badass. Like he gets more and more badass as the the years go along um, after, you know, the Hydra twist happening in S.H.I.E.L.D. that changed the show from, a, you know, Uh, an Avengers procedural kind of show that, you know, picked up after the messes of the movies almost um, to just this intense nonstop sci-fi action show that again, I say everyone needs to watch. It is so good. It honestly is one of the best things. I mean, I, I talk about the, the faults of the TV MCU stuff and the lack of connection to the films. But if you're a fan of the films, you're going to love this show. You're going to love all these shows. They're all really good in their own rights. So, yeah, I just I just really wish more people would watch. But Coulson is just absolutely brilliant. I couldn't love him more. So uh, there he is, my number four pick, uh, Agent Phil Coulson. Speaking of agents, my number 
three pick would have to be one of the greatest agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that ever lived, and that is Peggy Carter. Oh, this was an easy number three pick, I think. I said before that everything, all these, these four characters were split by the tiniest of margins, but Peggy, for some, like, I just knew she was my number three. Uh, I adore her. I adore her so much. And Hayley Atwell is just a beautiful woman, a beautiful actress, a mesmerizing performer, and a just powerful lady. Like, she's incredible. I, yeah, I love everything about Peggy Carter. I really do. It's just such a shame that we haven't actually gotten a whole huge amount of her. Again, you know, another, you know, talking about the TV shows again, I can talk about Agent Carter here and I will. Another very underrated show that didn't get the chance it should have gotten to, um, to thrive and to live and go on for a number of years because it was so good. It's so good. Season one and season two of that show are just, just brilliant. Like, period like your period piece in the in the 40s um in new york and then season two you're in los angeles in the 40s it's beautiful you get references to the movies like uh dominic cooper reprises his role as howard stark from captain america first avenger and then we get james darcy playing uh the real life uh edwin jarvis the original the butler uh, of the stark family um, and that is just perfection. The, the, the dynamic between all these three characters, like they're your core characters, uh, especially Peggy and Jarvis, the, the, the friendship and the, that they have um, throughout the two seasons is just a joy, an absolute joy to watch. And while I'm on this, I should remember that actually uh, when Jarvis pops up in uh, James Darcy's Jarvis pops up in Avengers Endgame uh, at Camp Lahai in 1970 when Tony Stark and Steve Rogers go back to get Pym particles from Pym's lab. They, yeah, Tony uh, ends up, you know, seeing his dad and then seeing Jarvis and it's played by James Darcy and that, ladies and gentlemen, is actually the one and only time any character from the TV shows has ever appeared on screen and the big screen in the MCU. So that was a pretty momentous occasion for fans of the show, especially for fans of Agent Carter. Uh, just, yeah, awesome. So good. Um, but yes, Peggy is Peggy's just wonderful. She is the perfect partner to Steve Rogers. You can see why those two are meant to be together. You really can. She... She also stands for and represents everything that Steve Rogers stood for and stands for and fights for. She's the exact same. And just the fact that she's a woman, she doesn't let that stop her from beating the bad guys, from getting the job done. You know, it's that's what one of the really great things about the 1940s setting of the Agent Carter series is the fact that obviously that's a time when, you know, someone like Peggy Carter should should have, or like in, in terms of what the men of the time thought, she belonged, you know, in the in the phone room, she belonged getting coffees, she she belonged, you know, running errands. She wasn't a proper agent in their eyes. And this is it's so interesting because the series is set after the events of uh the first Avenger, in which she was a pivotal part of 
you know, defeating Hydra alongside Steve Rogers um, and all of the other, um, you know, soldiers in the uh, strategic scientific, no, the scientific strategic reserve. I may have mixed that up. I think it's scientific strategic reserve. I'm just going to, I'm going to check my notes for a second. Yes, scientific strategic reserve, the SSR which would later become S.H.I.E.L.D. when Peggy founded it. Another reason why Peggy Carter is so great, she created S.H.I.E.L.D. uh, and as an homage to Captain America and how much she loved him. Uh, But yeah, so she doesn't let the fact that she's a woman stop her. Like, yeah, like I was, yeah, like I was saying, she's, you know, she she fought alongside these men um, against Hydra and with the Howling Commandos as well. Um, the Helen Commandos are great, and we get to see a little bit more of them in the Agent Carter show too, which was really cool. Or unless that was in Shield, I could be getting my wires crossed. They were all airing around the same time, and I haven't rewatched them in a long time. I'm sorry, but anyway, you know what I'm talking about if you've seen the shows. Uh, yes, but it's just very, it's very kind of, it's so frustrating and it's so heartbreaking to watch her struggle and watch her face these obstacles of of sexism in the workplace, even if it is within the SSR and, you know, shield it's yeah, it's such a shame, but yeah, she overcomes every single time and finds love in the process. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it was kind of weird seeing her, uh, you know, with, well, not, she doesn't actually kind of get with him, but she sort of does <laughs> in the show. Someone else apart from Steve Rogers. But at this point in time, they hadn't really uh, revealed or even obviously maybe dreamt about the fact that uh, Steve and Peggy would end up together because the Agent Carter show ended um, like three or four years ago now. It's been a little while. Very sad to say. But yeah, I mean, she, she I don't know, she has a great story and she's such a noble warrior and I just adore her through and through she's the kind of woman I would aspire to be honestly she's just absolutely wonderful through and through so there's my number three pick agent director of shield I should say Peggy Carter all right so we're going to move into number two now my number two pick and that would be the god of thunder himself Thor yeah, for those who know me, uh, they should not be surprised to see that Thor is my number two pick for this list. I am such a fan. I've, he's my favorite Avenger. He's my favorite hero uh, in the entire MCU. Oh my goodness. And Chris Hemsworth is honestly just the best actor they could have found to play Thor in a film ever. He is absolutely wonderful and I love the mix of humor and gravitas and emotion and Shakespearean-esque aspects that uh, that Hemsworth brings to the character and has brought to the character f- over many films now that we've seen. Um, and he's so successful in the fact that he's going to be the first character in the entire MCU to get a fourth film. Famously, Iron Man and Captain America have gotten trilogies and Thor now having a trilogy will be uh getting getting a fourth film and it's all due to the success of Thor Ragnarok and the fact that Taika Waititi is returning to direct uh Thor Love and Thunder as well also helps carry on this glorious franchise that aside I am a very big fan 
of all the Thor films. I don't care what you say. I, I love them. Even the ones that aren't as good as Ragnarok. I mean, yes, the, you know, the elephant in the room, Thor the Dark World, is definitely looked upon as one of the less favorable MCU films uh, in the franchise, but I, I've always loved it. I love what it tries to do, and it does some really good things with their characters in the film. Mostly Loki, but more on him in a bit. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> but yeah, it's it. I don't know. I, I especially I think Thor, Thor's journey in the first Thor film is wonderful because he has a similar story to Tony Stark in terms of him starting out as this kind of almost playboy god. Like he's so arrogant and so full of himself similar to Tony Stark in that way and he knows he's going to be king and he just wants to be king I mean we first meet Thor um like as a kid when he's been told by his father Odin that he's going to be you know he's going to be king someday and thereby creating the conflict between Thor and Loki right from the start but then the next you know they flash forward to his coronation where Odin is going to make him king of Asgard I think is what that scene was you know, or or announce him as, you know, the person who's going to be up for the throne next once Odin, you know, steps down as king of Asgard. And, yeah, he's all, you know, run, yeah, look at me, and, you know, this is a great moment for me, and he's just, yeah, he's, he's all about himself. Um, and then he cracks the shits like a little child when, you know, things don't go his way, and then, you know, his anger gets the best of him when he wants to go and, you know, uh, start war with Jotunheim because of what they've done, trying to steal from the Asgardians um, their their weapon. And it's yeah, it's um he he just you know he's a buffoon. He he's a hothead, you know. And but by the time the film is done, we get a Thor who is grounded, who is more humble, who realizes what a true hero is and what a true leader needs to be, even though he still kind of acknowledges that he's not ready to be king. Um, and we get more of that expanded in Thor The Dark World with his relationship with Odin in that film um, and what they talk about there. But I think where we where we start with Thor in the first Thor film and where we end up with him um, upon its finish is, yeah, is a really great journey and because he's humbled by the fact that he gets sent to earth and, you know, doesn't have his powers, can't lift Mjolnir, even though he knows, well, he believes Mjolnir is his. He doesn't, he believes he's worthy, even though he's not at that time, you know, um, because he's, you know, being taught a very harsh lesson. And I really love the grounded, beautiful, humbled version of Thor. I really enjoy that quite a bit and we get that's who we get for Thor the Dark World I and I love I love that version of the character a lot and he, he yeah he, there's some humor to him but not a lot um so the only kind of bad thing about the Thor franchise is, is the the drastic change in tone from Thor the Dark World to Thor Ragnarok despite Ragnarok's overall overwhelming success and reception by the fans um and moviegoers worldwide when you watch the films back to back, it's a little jarring because the first scene you see Thor uh, in Thor Ragnarok, he's, you know, monologuing to a skeleton and, and making jokes and, and doing all this stuff. And he's never really done that before. I mean, we get glimpses of humor, obviously, throughout 
the films, but they're only glimpses. And here he's almost a completely different person. I don't know whether you want to chalk that up to the fact that it's been a couple of years since we've last seen him. He's gone on this journey to find the Infinity Stones after we left him in uh, Age of Ultron. Um, and whether that journey has just kind of turned him a bit loopy and therefore he's not as he was. He's still kind of Shakespearean-esque in ways and he still looks the same, but he sounds dramatically different. He sounds a lot funnier. And it, look, it works to a degree and it definitely improved the quality in the films. Just, I don't know, just because Thor, I think, needs to... I, I really like the fact that Ragnarok is Thor owning up to the campiness of him and his origins. The best part, one of the best parts about Thor Ragnarok is is the aesthetic of it, the look of it. It looks like a Jack Kirby comic. It's so well designed and well well handled, well done. And so Thor, the way they change him needs to fit this new aesthetic. And it, it works. I mean, it, yeah, it's jarring, but it works. Ultimately, when you, I don't know, when you watch the film, it it does eventually work and and when they bring him back to Infinity War and then Endgame and you know I mean he's better in Infinity War than he is in Endgame I think Thor is the MVP of Avengers Infinity War despite his failure to go for the head and kill Thanos he has one of the best entrances in the entire film the moment the only moment we hear the Avengers score in Infinity War is during the moment where Thor arrives with Stormbreaker, Groot, and Rocket in tow uh, to the battle in Wakanda and just goes ham on uh, Thanos' army. And it's just brilliant to watch. It's such an entrance. It's so iconic. Uh, but yes, and thought just the journey Thor goes on from in the Infinity War as well. Uh, he's lost his mum, he's lost his dad, he's lost his sister he never knew he had and then, you know, had to deal with that, kill her, and then... Uh, and then he loses Loki, just as Loki was finally starting to come around and actually be, you know, maybe a hero. Who knows? I mean, he died basically trying to, you know, save the day. So he kind of redeemed himself there. But, you know, Thor was broken in Infinity War. And the way Chris Hemsworth portrays that emotion and that sadness, like, it's very well written. Marcus and McFeely did an exceptional job writing Avengers Infinity War, especially what they did with Thor's character. They balanced the drama and the humor perfectly, whereas Ragnarok goes more to the zany humor a bit than it does to the seriousness and the, the, the weighted drama of it all. Uh, Infinity War really just kind of captures that balance, you know, perfectly balanced as all things should be, to quote a mad titan. Uh, it's, yeah, it's it's awesome and... That scene, I still love that scene where Rocket talks to Thor and, you know, you can see Thor mourning his brother and mourning Asgard, mourning Heimdall, mourning everybody. He's lost. He's lost everything. And he's still not willing to give up. It's just, it's the beautiful thing and the beautiful part that makes him such a great hero and definitely makes him my favorite hero is his just persistence like nevertheless and you say nevertheless she persisted nevertheless she persisted but it's he in this case and that's Thor in a nutshell and I can't wait I can't wait to see more of him I'm not going to talk about Endgame Thor other than the fact that I just love seeing 
him dual wield Stormbreaker and um, and Mjolnir at the same time. Uh, oh, maybe I will talk about Endgame Thor for a second, just because I loved the fact that they revisited the Dark World and made it relevant in terms of bringing Frigga back and having that uh, you know mother son relationship explored a bit deeper. That was beautiful. The only thing about Endgame Thor I don't like is the fact that his PTSD is used for comic relief. I have a major problem with that probably my least favorite thing about Endgame and kind of disappointing the fact that Thor would go from the MVP of uh, Infinity War to a bumbling buffoon in Endgame and they kind of ruined him a little bit. I think they went a bit too far into the silliness with that whereas they balanced him perfectly in Infinity War so I don't really know what happened but I'm willing to whistle past it at the end of the day because Chris Hemsworth has great comedic timing and he plays it off well and then he's just epic in the final fight at the end against Thanos. So there you have it, guys. That is my number two pick. That is Thor, God of Hammers. <laughs> um, all right, now we're just going to quickly go through my honorable mentions. Um, and my first honorable mention is Vision. I love Vision. I love Paul Bettany. I love Paul Bettany. The way he delivers those lines. I just love his voice, the way he speaks, the way he carries himself as this character. He He's so believable as a, a, as a real thing, you know, when he's so clearly not. And I just really enjoy uh, watching him work. So, yeah, Vision is definitely worth a mention here. And connecting, segueing from Vision straight into Wanda Maximoff. Scarlet Witch is beautiful, and I, I kind of wish I could have had a list of, you know, 15 characters instead of a top 10, just because I feel bad for actually not including some of these honorable mentions on the main list, but it was just so tough for me to actually decide uh, who to include and who not to include. But, you know, you got to do what you got to do at the end of the day. But Wanda is... is gorgeous. Elizabeth Olsen is an extremely talented performer. She is just uh, a, a beautiful to watch. I love how just intense her delivery is, you know, with her performance. Like in Age of Ultron, she's fantastic. She goes from being a villain to being a hero. Her journey from that film and her relationship to with, like with Hawkeye and then losing her brother and you know oh I just it's, it's she's so good she's so powerful and and the fact that she was able to go toe-to-toe with Thanos and in Endgame and hold her own and I can't wait for WandaVision I'll just say that I'll just leave it with that I can't wait for WandaVision it's going to be so good um speaking of powerful women the next lady I'm going to mention is Carol Danvers Captain Marvel herself yeah Brie Larson again as I said in my last podcast is just a wonderful wonderful actress a wonderful woman and Carol Danvers is such a great hero. I, I can't wait for Captain Marvel 2. I really want more of her. Uh, that was the only disappointing thing. I mean, okay, I said Thor before, but another disappointing thing, small thing, small thing, um, about Endgame is the fact that uh, Captain Marvel wasn't in the movie anywhere near as much as we all thought she was going to be, which is such a shame. But they had a lot to juggle and a lot to figure out for that film, so I think they used her when she was needed and it, and it works well enough. I don't like the short hair on her. I do prefer the long hair, but that's, that's just me being a girl kind of (laughs) doing girl, girl doing girly things uh, with hair. It's not really a big deal at all, to be honest, but no, she's, I mean, not only can Wanda Maximoff go toe to toe with Thanos, so can Carol and Carol's even more powerful than Thanos. You know, if he hadn't had the, the infinity 
uh, any of the Infinity Stones at that time, like you know the fact that he he used the Power Stone to knock her down, she she overpowered him, and you see it in that scene where she, you know he he he's fighting her and he headbutts her, and she doesn't flinch. It's gorgeous. So I love Carol Danvers so much. Moving into another honorable mention, and I'm going to talk about Scott Lang, Ant-Man himself, and the hilarious, hilarious man that is Paul Rudd. Holy crap, I love Paul Rudd. He's so funny. Uh, Along with, I think, Tom Holland being one of the best casting choices for the MCU, Paul Rudd is also up there. He is phenomenal he is so funny uh comedic timing is off the hook and i love the fact that he got to play such a pivotal role in the conclusion of the infinity saga in avengers endgame um you know basically helping to you know create time travel with tony stark essentially uh yeah just just awesome and he he's so much fun the humor he brings the you know he's a breath of fresh air honestly. Um, and I, yeah, I, the Ant-Man films are very underrated and should be appreciated and celebrated a lot more than they are. And I, yeah, cause they're so much fun. They're so much fun. That's the best thing about them. You can just have a good time, sit back and relax and enjoy yourself. And that's mostly thanks to Paul Rudd and Scott Lang being such a fun character. So, and my last honorable mention is the one and only Natasha Romanoff, Black Widow. Oh, Scarlett Johansson, one of my favorite actresses ever to grace the silver screen. And the, uh, oh, I don't even know what to say about her playing uh, Natasha. Another complex character, you know, going from someone who was working with the KGB and then being recruited by S.H.I.E.L.D. after, you know, Hawkeye was sent to kill her and he decided not to. Uh, and then, you know, her journey from, like, I love the the, the way her journey as a spy kind of gets infused with the journey of you know the MCU in terms of the Hydra twist and in terms of the Sokovia accords like I love the themes they explore and the the depth they go the depths they go into with her character are just excellent and I'm really really hoping for a lot more of that with the upcoming Black Widow film which will be out at the end of April hashtag not sponsored but would really love to be because I love Marvel so much (laughs) in case you can't tell but yes I love Black Widow I love Natasha she's excellent so um yeah can't wait to see her finally finally get her own movie much deserved and long awaited okay now ladies and gentlemen we're going to wrap this podcast up with my number one favorite character. And uh, <laughs> again, for those who know me, are going to know already who it is. But if you don't, then here we are. And I am going to talk about the one, the only god of mischief, Loki. Ah, yes, here we are going to talk about Loki. I'm so excited. I've been waiting this whole podcast to talk about Loki. <laughs> oh my goodness okay Loki for me is the best villain in the MCU and I mean I may be biased on that but how can he not be when he is played so excellently by Tom Hiddleston holy crap that man is so talented golden globe winning actor Tom Hiddleston he is just phenomenal and the depth and the complexities he brings to Loki as a character 
that make him so much better than your, you know, your one-off movie villains, um, your two-dimensional villains that you get, uh, throwaway bad guys. Loki is just brilliant uh, in terms of characterization as well. Like, you know, starting as Thor's adopted younger brother, you find out in the film that he's adopted, and, and that scene still from Thor 1, and the fact that this was Tom Middleston's breakout performance too, like, you know, I had never seen him in anything before this. He'd only kind of been in British television um, before this. This was the big, the big moment for him. He's in a scene with Sir Anthony Hopkins as Odin, holding his own. Again, as I say earlier with the, the other talented actors I've mentioned during this podcast, but he's going toe to toe with an, uh, an icon, a legend, an Oscar winner. And it's just, it's just great. I, I, I just love their scenes. Anytime Anthony Hop- Sir Anthony Hopkins and Tom Hiddleston are in a scene together, it's just, you're going to get cinema magic. You really are. And that scene where Loki just breaks and just screams, tell me to his, who he thinks is his father and finds out he's not. Um, it's so great. And it's such a great villain. It's such a great villain origin story. He's more than just, he starts as just this, you know, the, the, the sniveling little weasel who wants his brother to fail to finding out his life's been a lie fed to him by his would-be father, not actual father. He's betrayed and led to believe he should be a king and then he's not. And, uh, and I just, I love the way he's at odds with his identity and he's at odds with his brother and his family and... But then he still loves his mother. He still loves Frigga. And when he loses her, it's so sad. And it's that scene in in uh, Thor the Dark World where, you know, he reveals what he what his he and his cell really look like to Thor and says, now you see me, brother, is just, oh, it's dark and it's powerful. It just, it pulls on the heartstrings because you love to hate Loki or at least, you know, you can't fully hate him. You know, like there's something about him, the way Tom Hiddleston performs um, as him that just, you know, captivates you and just really makes you root for him. You know, there's good in him. Like he's he's kind of like the Anakin Skywalker of this whole thing because he's still he has done he has done evil. There is no denying Loki has done evil, Um, whether it's of his own accord or if he's been manipulated by Thanos or whatever he's responsible for some despicable acts right but you still know you know where he comes from who his family is despite the fact that he has odds with his family Thor never gives up on him Thor never gives up on him he almost does well he kind of alludes to maybe giving up on him in Thor the Dark World but you know it's I don't know I just I just adore I just adore so much about what they've done with Loki as a character and making him as complex as he is. And Tom Middleston was the perfect man to bring that character to life. I mean, there's kind of a, again, with when you hit Ragnarok, there's a little bit of a disconnect because of, I mean, because in Thor The Dark World, Loki is still much more of a villain, but he's got, you know, he's got an anti-hero aspect to him at this point because, you know, he ends up pretending to die, sacrificing himself, you know. And so we all kind of think he's maybe starting to come around, but then he dies, you know. But by the end of the film, of course, you find out it's all for his own 
advantage, as of course it always is with Loki. He only thinks about himself, at least until we get to Ragnarok and then Infinity War. But yeah, it's it 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 just he's this villain on the throne at the end of the Dark World, and then you see him in Ragnarok, and he's been on the throne for a couple of years at this point, while Thor's been off looking for Infinity Stones, hasn't been around in Asgard, and things have changed because Loki's pretending to be Odin now, and nobody suspected a thing somehow. Mm, okay. Giant statue of Loki give anything away, people? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 kind of... Loki's, Loki is very different in, in Ragnarok, but I, I feel like you really just have to chalk that up to the, the time difference between the Dark World and between now, because he's kind of just decided to... I don't know, it's weird. It's weird because, you know, in mythology, Loki's responsible for Ragnarok. And I guess in the movie Ragnarok, he is also responsible for bringing it about because of what he does to Odin, gives Hela the opportunity to come back, um, and therefore Ragnarok happens and Asgard is destroyed. So yeah, yeah, Loki is still responsible. But I was expecting going into the movie that he was actually going to be kind of the villain again with her. I mean, I kind of liked seeing him as a good guy, seeing him as part of the Revengers uh, with Valkyrie and Hulk. Um, I enjoyed that. I did. But yeah, it's, um, I don't know. I was, I really love villain, villainous Loki. I don't know. There's just something about him. I don't know why. Uh, maybe it's the bad boy thing. I don't know. Um, which is why I'm really looking forward to the Loki series coming out next year. Uh, Cause it's going to be the 2012 version of Loki. This, the messed up, as all hell from Thanos, evil Loki in this series. So I'm super keen for that. That's going to be so much fun. But it was nice to see him kind of be redeemed in Ragnarok. And then because, I mean, he makes the decision, like, you know, after that excellent conversation, one of the best parts of Ragnarok is the conversation that um, Thor and Loki have in the lift, in the elevator, where Thor basically tells him, you know, you could... You're always the god of mi- mischief, but you could be more. I love that conversation they have, and where, where where Thor finally acknowledges that even though he wants to save Loki, he's like, "I, you're you, and I'm me, and you know our paths diverged long ago." You know, that's you know he acknowledges that, and he says that to Loki, and Loki's just, you know, kind of like, "Well, shit, all right, cool. I guess I could stay here, or I guess I could actually get my shit together and do something." Um, and so he comes good again in the end and then he stupidly takes the Tesseract uh, because Loki Loki's got a Loki and then in yeah in Infinity War he dies a hero's death basically which I still can't really watch and I remember crying so much in the cinema watching that scene the first time that was hard that was hard to watch it still is hard to watch I don't like that I don't like that at all but for that scene though to say so much in the fact that you're the villain of your overall thing Thanos is finally arrived and what better way to introduce him than by killing off the franchise's most popular villain uh, up until this point like or the first villain the Avengers faced directly was Loki indirectly obviously Thanos but the fact that this is how Thanos is set up like you want to see how how bad I am I'm gonna kill Loki in front of you and in a really gruesome way too but nevertheless I'm yeah it was it was really good to see Loki come around so uh wonder what kind of direction they'll take his character in in uh 
in the Loki series. I, I honestly can't wait. It's going to be a lot of fun. And that little five second tease that we got the other day was oh, the definition of tease. I'm super keen, super excited. Can't wait. So I think that's it, guys. That's my number one pick. Loki, the god of mischief. Oh, man. What a character. And what a list of characters. Uh, every one of them. Just phenomenal. So thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the Collectible Chaos cast. My top 10 favorite MCU characters. Uh, there you have it. That's it. I don't have anything else to say. Just um, please subscribe. Please share this around. Really want to see if we can get this picking up some traction going. All of your support would be very greatly appreciated. Please also feel free to check out a podcast called Fred and the Monthly at Winifred's. Two great podcasts that we at Fred the Alien Productions also put out. So get around them, get on the YouTube, get on the social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, you can find us there and yeah, just just get it, get around it, get involved, join the conversation, feel free to comment, feel free to to at me about certain things. Did I leave any characters out? You know, did I say anything that offended you? If so, I'm sorry. I'm just really passionate. But anyway, I think that's it for me. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. I have been a Kendall Richardson, and you just experienced collectible chaos. <laughs>